Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 2nd of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. AIM2 is accusing the government of many failings in the way it responded to COVID-19. The government is promising a review into the pandemic, but Patter Tobin asked the Taoiseach yesterday, is he for real, saying that the deaths of 3,500 people who contracted the disease in a nursing home warranted more than a review. Will you go on the record and say that we have a full commission of investigation in relation to this tragedy? Taoiseach Leo Vratker told the AIM2 leader there will be an inquiry. We will have a full uh, public inquiry uh, into how the pandemic was handled in Ireland. Uh, That will include what happened in nursing homes. It will include what happened in hospitals. It will include what happened to the community uh, and the wider uh, economic and social response. Uh, The exact format of that um, we haven't decided on yet, but I do want to be done properly. Um, and whether that's using the Commission investigations mechanism, which has its pros and cons, or a tribunal mechanism, or a different mechanism, um, I'm open to that being considered. But there are pluses and, and minuses to all of these, all of these mechanisms. Um, and I don't think it'll be done quickly, by the way. I think it will take time, and it will take time to do it properly. But I'm determined to have that up and running uh, this year, uh, ideally by the middle of the year. Taoiseach Leo Vratker responding to the founder and leader of AIM2, Petter Tobin, a TD for Meath West, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, full inquiry will be established hopefully by the middle of this year. That's what you wanted to hear, but I don't think you and the government see eye to eye on this. No, we, we, we do recognise that the government have moved, and, and you know that, that's a positive thing. So when um, Michal Martin was Taoiseach, uh, he said that there was going to be a review, and the way that he phrased it, it looked like it would be an internal review, maybe a number of experts sitting down, carrying out a report themselves, now, uh, what we've managed to do is to push the government onto a situation now where it's going to be a full public inquiry, uh, which means that information and evidence will be taken in public, uh, I expect. But it's still very nebulous. It's still very vague exactly what, what is meant by this. And I suppose the context of this is very simple, is that you know, a, a shocking number of people, 3,500 people died as a result of contracting COVID in a hospital or a nursing home. And many people that are listening to your show uh, would have had... Loved ones died in those, those circumstances. I know particularly people who went in, maybe uh, they had an accident, they damaged maybe a leg, they went into hospital, they caught COVID in hospital, and very shockingly, they came out in a coffin uh, as a result of that. So that's a, a, a human disaster, uh, an enormous human disaster for those people. My worry is that there's already 44 people now who have taken court cases against the state in terms of this uh, crisis. Um, so... You're, you're going to see that figure build. Um, and the difficulty with that is, you know, we know what the government does, is that the government is going to 
you know, aggressive, aggressively litigate against those individuals, fight them all the way uh, in the courts. And that's going to be a big cost on them. It's going to be a big um, emotional challenge to them to go on for years to do that. Um, and these are the people who have lost loved ones. There needs to be a better system where they can find out what happens to their loved ones. They can get justice uh, if necessary, and we can get to the truth of what happened. And ideally then, that we can learn the lessons of what happened so that it doesn't happen again. So if somebody went into a hospital with a, a broken leg, contracted COVID-19 in that healthcare setting and died as a result, your belief is that the state is liable? No, we have to know why exactly that happened. So we know of particular hospitals. No, 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 but you, you said that... No, no, I'm not saying it's liable in every situation. Well, you said, you, you, said you, you voiced a concern that the state would fight a legal action if the family took a, a legal action, and you gave the clear impression that the state shouldn't fight that legal action. Well, let's, let, let's uh, clear up any false impression that there is. Um, there are cases that we know of whereby uh, patients were put into wards with individuals who had COVID uh, knowingly against the proper um, steps that they should have taken. We also know, for example, that 10,000 patients were moved from hospitals in, in the first six months of COVID into nursing homes, and many of those people weren't tested for COVID. So that had the practical effect of seeding those uh, nursing homes uh, with COVID. We also know, for example, that the nursing homes wanted to close their doors to general visitors coming in uh, in the first month of the COVID crisis. But NEFA turned around and said, no, there's no need to do that. They allowed the doors to remain open for another uh, six or eight weeks, and then they realised they had made a mistake, and then they, they closed it. We also know that there was major problems with staffing. Uh, so, uh, you know, I remember a, a nursing home in Galway where two staff were on duty for 48 hours. The manager had to come on the radio in tears, national radio in tears, because they couldn't get uh, staff. Five people died uh, in that 48-hour shift when those two uh, staff members were on their own. Um, and we know that nursing homes went on Facebook looking for help. They phoned relatives looking for help. And at the same time, we know that the Minister for Health had organised an initiative called Be On Call for Ireland, where 73,000 people signed up to. Um, people came home from Australia, people came home from Canada um, to be of assistance in this time of need. And out of that 73,000 people, only about 400 people were ever employed. Only 10% of that database of people who wanted to help were ever contacted by the HSE. And at the same time, Paul Reid was, 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 was answering uh, the CEO of HICWA, Phelan Quinn, um, Mr. Mary Butler. He was answering them a month late, but he was saying, no, no, there's no problem here. The HSE have covered. We have enough staff. So there was serious problems in, in, in terms of what happened. Okay, hold, hold, hold that thought, because uh, uh, we'll hear a response to what you've just said there from uh, the Taoiseach. This is Leo Varadkar speaking to you in the Dáil yesterday. There was a lack of staff at various points uh, during the pandemic. Um, it was often the case that staff were just unavailable. Uh, in some cases, staff were unwilling to go into nursing homes for fear of getting the virus themselves, and I can understand that. Um, and in other cases, when people were contacted... Uh, because they'd offered their services, uh, they weren't available uh, when they were contacted. And that was the, the, the real experience that I would have had of it uh, during that period of time. And you recall during that time, I, I registered as a doctor myself um, and took part in both the vaccine programme uh, and the occupational health programme uh, prior, prior to that. Um, I, I do think the characterisation that you mentioned at the start, Deputy, 
wasn't um, particularly accurate. I'm sure it is the case that there were people who went into uh, hospital who were in very good health and perhaps had something like a broken leg uh, and contracted a virus and, and died of it. That unfortunately does happen in healthcare and it's not never uh, um, uh, uh, something anybody wants to see happen. Uh, but the vast majority of people who died of COVID in Ireland uh, were people who were elderly and people who had underlying medical conditions. Uh, and that is how viruses work. Um, and that would have been the case in the community as well as hospitals and as well as nursing homes. And out of respect to the relatives of the thousands of people who did die in hospitals and nursing homes, we shouldn't create the impression that all or even most of those deaths were preventable. Some of them might have been. Um, but nobody dies of natural causes. Uh, there's always a reason. Uh, and very often it's a respiratory infection or a urinary tract infection. And people who are elderly and people who have comorbidities, uh, that is the thing that they get at the end. Uh, and that is the cause of death. But it's not the case that those deaths uh, were all or even mostly preventable. And I think it's important out of respect to those families, many of whom are still grieving, that we don't create a false impression in that regard. Taoiseach Leo Radker, do you accept that, Peter Tobin? Well, I just think it's astounding because every night uh, you myself and everybody else were watching the, the nine o'clock news and we were told every night about how many people were dying around the country. And if anybody at that time raised a voice and said, well, these people are going to die anyways, they would have been shut down. And literally, that's exactly what the Taoiseach has just said there. He said that these people had, were old, they had comorbidities, they probably would have died anyway. And I think that's in, like, it's just in total contradiction to what the whole of NEFIS, the whole of the HSC and the government were telling us night after night after night for two solid years. I, I don't think that, I certainly didn't hear it that way. Uh, I, I think what he said was that Unfortunately, viruses will get into healthcare settings, and when they do, there's cohorts of people who are particularly vulnerable to it, and that that eventually they'll die of pneumonia or a respiratory illness. Uh, but I, I, because the viruses got in, uh, despite everybody's best efforts, uh, I don't think he, he was saying that they were going to die anyway. I, I really well, he, he did way. say he said that that, that they, these people were old and they had comorbidities and. Mm. He said, and they were in a healthcare day, setting where the day. virus got in despite everybody's best efforts. I, I mean, yeah. I think everybody pulled together and did their best to stop it. And that was why we were okay, watching well, the news okay, every okay, day okay, and listening okay. to the amount of deaths and going through all of uh, the public health uh, restrictions so that we could prevent vulnerable people from getting the virus. Because we knew that if they got the virus, uh, there was this great chance that they would succumb to it. Okay, so give you the example of Mary Bartley Meehan, who you may remember, uh, who oh, had very a, well, yes, yeah. Yeah, a husband and a son in a, nurse, uh, in a, in a home um, and during COVID. And at this period of time, shocking, horrific news came out at the time um, that when she went in to see uh, her husband and her, her, and her late son, um, the husband had a cancerous tumour on the face, but... His nails were so long, uh, they weren't cut uh, by anybody. And they started to, he, on, he was an action that he wasn't maybe in control of, but he started to pick at the tumour in his face, which became open uh, and wounded and infected. Um, there was a you know, very, very strong smell in relation to it. Um, and that individual was left in a horrendous situation. And there are many, many examples across the country of that, uh, uh, not that particular situation, but of patients not getting the support that they needed in that scenario. And of course, there were pressures on staff. But the key point here is, so, um, for example, Tyg Daly of uh, Nursing Home Ireland contacted 
Simon Harris, who was the Minister for Health at the time, to see could he get a meeting. Uh, he contacted them over, day after day for about six weeks before Simon Harris would actually sit down with the head of Nursing Home Ireland to discuss what the situation was. It took, it took um, the HSE weeks to come back to ministers uh, in relation to uh, the requests that they were having to focus on this. Stephen Donnelly, who, was the, who is the Minister for Health now but was a, an opposition TD at the time, he was on the record of the Dáles saying that the HSE was actually intercepting PPE and intercepting staff from getting to nursing homes uh, in, in that situation. I remember the headlines of the newspapers were screaming out that extra staff were needed, and yet I knew uh, from my talks within the department that they were not accessing the database of people who had uh, volunteered mm. to help in that scenario. Okay, Ty Daly, uh, the head of Nursing Homes Ireland, if I remember correctly, was hoping to meet Simon Harris to stop visitors coming into nursing homes. Yeah, so... Th- th- uh, and, and, and you were opposed to that at the time. You, there's, there's two... You, 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 you objected to that restriction, but now you know that the virus can be brought into the nursing homes by visitors uh, and by staff and that sometimes it's impossible to keep it out. We were in an emergency. Nobody knew everything uh, and that remains the case today which why is why this is going to be reviewed, isn't it? Well, so we, we were in an emergency but if, if you look at the situation people were told not to move two kilometres from the house. People were told not to attend funerals of loved ones, go to school or go to work <clears throat> and yet the most dangerous place that existed was actually the nursing homes and the hospitals uh, in this country. And yes, there was a nuance in relation to uh, uh, visitors going into nursing homes. The nuance was we were opposed to people in general going into nursing homes to visit. But if a person was dying, we believed that a loved one should have been allowed to hold the hand uh, of that person while they're dying. They should have been allowed mm-hmm. to be with their loved one yeah. uh, while, while they were dying because there are many people and, uh, and there's many families listening to us today of- in Dundalk uh, who stood at the window uh, and watched a loved one die without anybody not even a member of staff there to hold their hand uh, people exactly. standing in the rain and, and, and with that was the point we were making that mm. there's actually there's, there's an emotional cost to all of this that was never really uh, un, uh, never uh, uh, taken into consideration mm. And also, we want this particular. But that's what we have to learn from now, isn't it? I mean, uh, the Taoiseach well, how do you said. Learn from it if you don't, if, if, you, if you don't even investigate it. But the Taoiseach said it's going to be investigated. He, he said that not everything uh, that happened was done correctly, and that's why an investigation is going to be commissioned by the government yeah. by the middle of this year to learn from it. Uh, exactly. But at the same time, you can't say that all of the deaths were preventable. Or give that you know, impression. And nobody has said that at all. And you also have to accept that people in nursing homes and hospitals were particularly vulnerable to a virus because their immune system was low. They were vulnerable to a virus, for sure. This virus affected people who were very old the most. Um, but the point we're saying is, and there's a, just so there's no confusion, we're not saying that lots of people died in nursing homes and, and, and hospitals. We're saying that lots of people died because they caught covid in a nursing home and a hospital, mm. that those deaths wouldn't have happened uh, when they happened uh, if they if the uh, COVID had been they had been protected from COVID. Also, in this particular investigation, we want included the government's decision to close cancer services, to close heart disease services, to close stroke and mental health services at the time. And um, again, we were as a party um, clear, clearly stating that if you close these services, what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, people catch or develop these illnesses, 
these illnesses will, will develop and get worse and become more dangerous. It'll take more efforts to try and cure these people and many people won't survive. So and your contention is that it is uh, the state's fault that the virus got into hospitals and that the virus got into nursing homes, that more should have been done to have kept the virus out? Just let me be clear here. Not in every case, Michael. It, is, it would be impossible to keep the virus out in every case. But there are clear cases where the state introduced the virus into nursing homes. Introduced it? Ten th- the information that we've received shows 10,000 people were purposely moved out of hospitals into nursing homes without being tested, Michael. I remember. Like, that's mm. incredibly serious. Like, it, the idea that, you know, I couldn't go two kilometres outside my house, but the state was putting people from a hospital into a nursing home without even testing them. That's criminal, Michael. Okay, uh, we'll uh, balance that very strong statement uh, by hearing uh, uh, another clip of uh, the Taoiseach yesterday. I think it is important um, that we're honest with people uh, with the best will in the world, uh, even with the best um, infection control procedures, it isn't always possible to keep viruses out of hospitals and out of nursing homes. If it's not brought in by the staff, it's brought in by the visitors, it's brought in by the patients. Um, and, 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 and that is just the reality of it. Um, and I think if you look at the same statistics the world over, you will see a similar profile, uh, a very high proportion uh, of people who sadly died of COVID um, uh, would have picked it up in a healthcare setting or in a nursing home. And that is the nature of, of, of a virus. Thank you, um, And I think we need to be uh, serious about looking into the issues that you raise and you're right to raise these issues. But we also need to not create the false impression uh, as to how viruses work and, and what was possible and what wasn't. It's, is it fair to describe it as criminal, Padre Toby? To move a patient into a nursing home without testing them, I think that's a, a very reckless action to take in the middle of a COVID pandemic. If I had a loved one in a nursing home and I knew that the state was moving people in next to them uh, without testing them, I would be furious. If they died as a result of that, I'd want answers. And that's all we're asking for, Michael, here. And, you know, the government is obviously very cautious about having a proper mm-hmm. investigation in this because the government's decisions will be under the spotlight. And Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar have a vested interest in actually just moving on if we can. It is my job as an, op- an opposition elected representative representing many people who have lost loved ones uh, uh, during the COVID crisis in these circumstances to make sure that we actually uh, shine a light onto the actions that were taken. Remember, this government was an outlier in the manner in which it uh, managed COVID. It didn't uh, uh, take the same decisions as most of the rest of, uh, of Europe uh, yeah. at the time. It was we more cautious, I think, was generally the accusation uh, that, it yeah, did so, more, so, that it did more to prevent the spread of the disease than elsewhere. Well, for example, if, if you close down cancer services, if you close down mental health services, if you close down heart disease services and stroke services, that's not cautious. Actually, what that does, it leads to excess deaths a, a year or two later. In December, we had more excess deaths than any month during COVID. It's an incredible thing. More people died in December than in any month in the whole of the pandemic. Ireland has the fourth highest level of excess deaths amongst the 27 European countries at the moment. And the government, when they're asked, what will they do about this, because I've asked them in the doll, all he has said is, we'll raise it with the CMO. Now, when you have more deaths than at a time where you shut down the whole country and you don't even do anything other than ask the CMO about it, 
that has to send alarm bells. Why are the governments not investigating properly? Why people are dying at, at a higher rate now? Why mortuaries are full? Why uh, people who are uh, undertakers are so busy? And parish priests are burying two people a day now in, in, in some parishes at the moment. So the, the decisions that were made two and three years ago have actual consequences in two or three years later to many, many people. And again, we need to make sure we understand what happens so it doesn't happen again. Okay. Undoubtedly, mistakes were made. Uh, I think everybody will uh, agree with that. Uh, But uh, at the same time, uh, I'm not sure if you agree with this, but I I think most people would believe or be of the belief uh, that the government handled the COVID-19 pandemic pretty well at the time. Well, I, I don't agree that they did, uh, in fairness. And, you know, I think it's interesting when you see even people from Neffet now coming out and saying that the decisions that the government uh, and Neffet made uh, were incorrect decisions. When we see the level of mental health issues amongst young children, you know, that we had the longest school closures of all of Europe. Um, we also were the only country that uh, shut down building sites uh, for the building of homes in the whole of Europe. No other country amongst the 27 built, uh, shut down all building of homes mm. during that period of time. Only Ireland, and Ireland has the worst housing crisis in the country. 400 people have died in homelessness in no, Dublin. I know, but don't forget the, the sense of panic. Years. I mean, I remember people calling in uh, and sending photographs in uh, uh, of builders on building sites uh, when uh, they were of uh, the belief that uh, construction had stopped but social housing was allowable, so that's why it was happening, but people were shocked and uh, appalled. We were all trying to grapple with something that we had never experienced. I agree, uh, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, in, 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 the, first, in the first year of it, that, um, it, was, it, it the, the information I remember sitting in the meetings that we were getting from Nevitt as a leader of, of a political party, and we were getting information that was you know, the information we were getting, what we were being told was so shocking and so frightening. Absolutely, the instincts of any government would be to protect the country uh, and to be cautious and, and, and even to make, you know, go beyond, you know, what might seem logical just to be sure that, you know, uh, you, you could do your best in this case. And I'm not saying that restrictions weren't necessary at all. At times they were necessary. Um, and, but what all I'm saying is that this country reacted in a manner that no other country did in a, in a more severe manner um, and there were consequences to that uh, and we need to be able to work out uh, who made the decisions, were the decisions the right decisions, were some decisions just mistakes that anybody would make or did people not do their jobs in certain circumstances that led to, uh, to death? And that needs to be teased out. And, you know, I'm not looking for a person to be sent to jail in relation to this uh, in any ways, but I'm I'm looking for answers to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Okay. I think that'll upset some people. Um, uh, But maybe uh, you believe uh, that that's necessary if uh, people were negligent. Uh, I'm sure you're right. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. That's uh, the leader and the founder of uh, the Ain2 Party, Peter Tobin, who's a TD for Me the West. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. It's been a, a very challenging few years uh, for business. Uh, a COVID, uh, just one of the problems. The greatest challenge facing small and, mis- small and medium enterprise this year is the lack of available talent, which is driven by affordable and appropriate housing being unavailable across most of the country. 
With a small number of exceptions, our chambers have housing as the main cause of their businesses' challenges, which highlights how important it is for us to achieve the goal of sustainable cities and communities. The transformation of our built environment to support sustainable living is simply not an aspiration, it's a necessity. Now that's the Chief Executive of Chambers Ireland, Ian Talbot, who was speaking to the Oireachtas Enterprise Committee yesterday. And he was also talking about how the way many young people know how challenging and impossible in many circumstances it is to get housing in this country. Imagine being a young couple trying to build a life for yourselves and finding that you're bidding on a house where your competition is the county council. Now imagine you're an employer. There's an enormous scarcity of talent. You can't find anyone else in the area with the same skills. You can't afford to pay them more, but they need to increase their income if they're going to get a mortgage and compete with that local authority. Those staff leave, they move to a different area, worryingly potentially to a different country, or they get a remote or hybrid job which pays them extra and allows them to stay close to their roots and their community. It's very hard to compete with that. Indeed, hard for employers, hard for employees, and there's an impact on business. We know the Irish units and multinationals are often not competitive for further internal investments because they cannot meet their existing employment targets, never mind expand their workforce. We are growing as an economy, but we're not growing at the pace we could grow. Our domestic market has been constrained by this lack of housing. Up and down the country, our members are telling us that businesses are busy, but they're leaving opportunities on the table because they do not have the capacity to take on more, more work. Now, that's Ian Talbot, as I say, Chief Executive of Chambers Ireland. Paddy Malone is uh, the PRO for Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. And a very good morning to you, Paddy. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Does Ian Talbot reflect the lived experience in Dundalk? He does to a certain extent. Um, Dundalk uh, and Drawda are both in a slightly different situation than the rest of the country, as, as, as Ian put it, uh, in that because of the M1 corridor, and this comes back to why it was so important in the first place, Michael, both Dundalk and Drawda are classified as regions that are, are growth centres. Now, what that means is we're not constrained by any factors. And at the moment, Louth County Council has increased the housing in 21 compared to 22 by 16 percent now it's not enough but it's not as bad as it is elsewhere now that's a little comfort to people looking for a house and uh, at the moment and i know one person rang me yesterday saying i want i've got a job in the dog paddy where do i live and mm. I, I, I went looking and I was actually surprised at just how difficult it is. It doesn't make it any more affordable either, though, does no, it? No, it doesn't. I mean, I'm looking at prices now and I'm just gulping because, you know, I'm, the, the cost of a monthly repay, I mean, in, in a year they would pay back more than I paid, I paid for my first house. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is very difficult. Uh, and it's a legacy issue from 10 years ago when we stopped building and we shouldn't have. It was a mistake. And we're paying the price for it now. And unfortunately, it's my daughters and my son's uh, generation that are paying that price. Right. Uh, I saw you on television last night talking about uh, PayPal closing down and you didn't think people would leave Dundalk. But surely be to God if you could work remotely from Leitrim or Warsaw, uh, that would be a lot more attractive, would it not, in terms of the cost of accommodation? Well, hang on a second now. First of all, PayPal is a Dundalk company. And if you're going to work for PayPal in Dundalk, my understanding is that you're still going to have to be resident in Ireland. So I, I they, oh right, well Leitrim then. <laughs> okay, so lovely, lovely Leitrim might be. Why, why not Warsaw? Because the PayPal was PayPal was is here as a Dundalk company. Yeah, but there's no, there, but it's closing down, so there's going to be a big empty building there now. 
Yes, well, hopefully it won't be an empty building that they will be selling it and somebody else will be but, moving into it. But it won't be PayPal employees who'll be in there, so, no, they, won't be so, so they'll have to get on their laptop and work from home. Yeah, but the process is that it's still going to be a Dundalk company, okay? And the, the emphasis is going to be on uh, creating a community within the area. Now, that concept is a hard one for me to get my head around, Michael. Uh, and it I know it's no going to be a difficult though. one to, yeah. for, for people to buy. And in the long term, you would worry about seepages over the, over the years. Yeah. Now, in relation to people living in the dock, there are already people living in the dock who work for, work for PayPal. Mm. If they're going to move to Lovely Leitrim, they're going to have to update, up, up and move from uh, their house, sell their house, uh, or even if they're renting, they're going to have to tackle the situation of schools and everything else. So it's not a simple matter. The movement to Leitrim is not just an economic matter. It does a whole number of other complications that come into it as well. Mm. And the reality is that this region of the well, we just heard Ian, the we just heard, we just heard Ian Talbot say that the growth centre is going to be in the future but we just heard Ian Talbot there say a moment ago that the experience that business have is that it's easier to move somewhere else when the housing is cheaper well moving somewhere else from where to where he's talking Ian is, t- is Dublin centric and he's talking about moving from Dublin to somewhere else like Dundalk that's what he's talking about so he's not talking about moving to Lovely Leitrim or Connemara, and I have no problem with either of those, those places. But what I'm saying is you've got to look at places where, the, where you can actually work remotely. Mm. Do you have the proper broadband? Do you have everything else in place that you need? And the one area that does have that is this area of County Louth. That is the blessing that we have. And as I said, Louth County Council's housing numbers, um, the number of new starts this year, or sorry, 22 compared to 21, is up 16%. Now, is it enough? No, it's not. Mm. Do I wish the hell that the County Council would do more? Pretty sure I do. But they are achieving more than anybody other counties because they don't have a cap on the overall growth. They can can grow as fast as they can. They have very good broadband in Berlin. Why couldn't you work remotely in Berlin for PayPal? Because you're not then an Irish company. You don't then qualify for the corporation tax rate of 12.5% and everything else that kicks out of it. Right. I mean, one of the things about being an Irish company is you have to have your people living in Ireland. Mm. Uh, Working remotely, though, uh, I mean, you could be on holidays in Berlin. Uh, and for two weeks. Yeah, but I mean, who, who's to know? Who's to know? Well, for a start, the IP address will tell you. Mm. And do you think that that's what's going to happen? Uh, yes. That revenue will be checking the IP addresses of all the staff at PayPal? They already have, in, they already, they already have issued statements along those lines. Right. They relax the rules when COVID hit, particularly to allow people in Dundalk, sorry, employers in Dundalk to allow their staff to work in Cosme Glen and in Uri and everywhere else. Mm. Post-COVID, the revenue have issued two statements, uh, two, pre- two statements to accountants like myself that will get these things, to, the, the nearly ones of, of following the tax re- regulations. They've issued two statements on this matter, okay. making it clear that they, inte- that they expect employers to recognise where their staff is. And what it means is that if an employer in the dock, it, it could be one of my clients, and I had, it, I had this conversation with a client of mine last week, he has somebody living in Uri. I said, well, look, if you want to allow them to work in Uri, you're going to have to register with HMRC, and you're going to have to go through the whole rigmarole mm. of having two payrolls. And somebody has to pay for it. 
and uh, you know, and then, then it gets down to, you know, he says, well, you can do it, just not that much. But okay. I mean, payroll is payroll. Okay. So, so, so dreadful news yesterday from PayPal: jobs lost, the building closed, the building closed for business as far as PayPal is concerned, no, and a bad day for Dundalk. It's it's look, it's not the ideal situation. But over the last three years, there's been no more than between 50 and 100 people in PayPal's building, physically, mm. or, uh, any, or on any one given day. There were 50 there yesterday. So from the point of view of recognising reality, that's what this is doing. Okay. Uh, what PayPal have said to me is that they'll continue to support the St. Patrick's Day Parade, the chamber in the events that it's doing. Now, I mean, is it something that I would like to see? No, it's not. Um, but... These hybrid situations, as mm. being talked about earlier on, this is the new world, and we've yeah. got to get used but to it. it and we've but got they, to they've got all it. these grants to uh, open up that building uh, as a place of employment. Now the money's run out, and uh, they're saying, "Well, we'll we'll keep the staff on, but they have to use their own. They have to use their own electricity and light and all that sort of stuff." First of all. Any grants that they got, they came in in 2012. Any grants that they got and any conditions that were in have run out long ago. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. But, but mm. the jobs are still in the dock. The expertise is still in the dock. Okay, well, we hope the payroll so. is still in the dock. So, some of them, not all of them, of course. Uh, just while you're with us, uh, how does uh, your members feel about uh, this new so-called Windsor framework? I think they're relieved because it doesn't disturb the North-South uh, Northern Ireland Protocol from the point of view of our members. In other words, any member dealing uh, that's importing or exporting to Newry or vice versa, it, it has no impact on us. So the situation is pre-2015. It's the same as it was for the last 30 years. And that's what we wanted. We wanted a border that we... We wanted a border that wasn't there, that, that economically has been removed long ago with the single market, and that's what we have. Um, so we have a conference on uh, Wednesday of next week, and I was just looking at uh, the agenda, and the, this is the seventh time we've rung this, believe it or not, uh, yep. Michael, mm-hmm. seven years since Brexit was, the vote was carried. Um, and when, we, when, we, when I look at the what was there the first three or four years, we were getting people to come in about customs, about duties, about uh, mm-hmm. what, they, what the rates were going to be. And they were up anything from 0% to 70%. Now, 70% was in the dairy and the meat business. Okay. It was scary for times. Now we're looking at a situation of progressing it, uh, of looking at how can we do trade with the other side? Okay. Uh, how can we increase trade? So the, the whole mood music of that conference is going to be significantly different All right, welcome, it has been. Uh, A welcome change. Paddy, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. That conference uh, taking place, as you say, on Wednesday. Paddy Malone, PRO of the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks, Ken Corla. Um, Taoiseach, I want to raise with you um, two elderly people who have contacted me over the last two days. Kitty uh, from Trim County Mead is over 100 years old. Her, lex- her electricity bill with Electric Ireland from the 7th of December 22 to the 3rd of February, 59 days, is €957.49 Euros 49 cents after all subsidies. That's Kitty's bill there. Uh, her previous bill was 133.42. Her electric usage is a fridge, a washing machine, immersion heater, lighting, two electric heaters on timers, and no central heating. 
This is Jerry Clark, 77 years old, from Beliver in County Mead, who told me I could use his name. He received his Electric Ireland bill this week, 1,678.65. His previous bill was 671 euros, and the one before that was 290. His bill of 1,678 euros, 65 cents, works out at 26.22 a day over 64 days. Not the highest price in Europe for domestic house, but the highest in the world. Is it any wonder that a third of all households are experiencing energy poverty? Taoiseach, the government and Minister Ryan need to get the finger out and deal with these energy companies who are making massive profits on the back of pensioners and the Irish public in a cost of living crisis. That's uh, Sinn Féin's Johnny Gurk speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Later we'll speak to Jerry Clark who's just received that bill from Electric Ireland for €1,678.65 but uh, as you heard there, Kitty in Trim is over 100 years of age and she's just received a bill for €900 fifty-seven euro forty-nine cent. Her nephew is Frank Dempsey, who's on at the line. And a very good morning to you, Frank, and thanks for joining us. We heard uh, what type of appliances Kitty has uh, at home to run up a, a bill like that. It sounded pretty modest in, in relation to what she's being charged. Uh, what does Kitty make of it? Well, I suppose, good morning, Michael, and thank you for having me on. It's, uh, I suppose it's, it's very simply, she's absolutely shocked when she received that particular bill. I suppose uh, the point uh, about that is that 957.49 is actually uh, the net bill after uh, all the subsidies, the government subsidy, and a uh, total of about 350 euros have been taken from that. So the bill was about t- between 12 and 1300 euros. Right. Uh, and why wouldn't that shock a 100-year-old uh, person who never had to pay a bill uh, for electricity of that magnitude? And and she would be aware and conscious of the fact that there have been increases and there are external reasons for that. But that kind of a, uh, what probably, uh, I suppose, plays most on our mind is uh, with the uh, how uh, the profits that these uh, energy companies are making um, she cannot understand uh, why the government is dragging its feet on a windfall tax. And that, that, that's the big issue here, really. I mean, I'm sure there are uh, thousands of uh, elderly people receiving bills like this, and they're all been totally shocked. I've, apart from uh, informing the local elected representatives about it, I've heard of several individuals with massive bills that are just out of all recognition. And Kitty's bill in this particular situation uh, is probably more astronomical than it seems if you consider the uh, items that have been outlined that she uses. She's very modest in a sense in terms of what she uses. She has no central heating and uh, just a basic like washing machine, fridge, no electric cooker. Uh, so it, 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 she's just absolutely flabbergasted with, with the, the bill, even the net bill of 957.49, Michael. Mm, well, it's not affordable, really, I, I'm sure, for anyone uh, and not on an ongoing basis because if that's what you're going to pay, I, I take it in two months, you can expect a, a another bill is high. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly where you're going. And if you relate that to, uh, shall we say, the pension that this lady would have received in the in those two weeks, those eight weeks, the two months that we're talking about, Michael, uh, in a percentage terms, what she received in pension, uh, the bill from Electric Ireland uh, amounts to about 75% of her total income for that uh, eight weeks. So that effectively leaves her with about 50 euros to pay all her other bills and to do her shopping and to look after herself. I mean, that's the enormity of what this bill is. When you relate the amount of the bill to the income of the individual, I mean, that makes it even more astronomical. She's been paying Um, electricity bills for 80 years or more, I imagine, Frank. I'm sure she's never seen one with as many figures uh, as uh, the amount due. No, absolutely not. I mean, by comparing, if you like, uh, similar periods last year when this bill arrived on the scene, I mean, the most she would ever have paid probably would have been in the region of about uh, 400 euro. Um, and that, that would be for a similar period last winter. So uh, understanding that there are increases. But I think another issue here is, if you like, elderly people in the situation, vulnerable people in the situation that she's in, mm. uh, need to be taken cognizance of um, allowing for subsidies and everything that the government allowed. But people like this uh, need, need to sort of get, not be thrown under the bus, basically, and be, and be getting an extra little bit of help. Right. Um, now, what do you want? Because, uh, as I said, we're going to talk to Jerry Clark later. He has this whopping mm. bill of nearly €1,700. Year, euro. He, he says he's not going to pay it. Is right. Kitty going to pay her bill? Well, I suppose since the bill arrived, Michael, uh, on her behalf, like uh, she, her family look after her, basically. She's living still at home. She's, she has always wanted to avoid, if you like, going to nursing homes. So, so in its own way, when you consider that particular aspect of the fact that she's still living in rural Ireland at over 100 years of age, that's a massive saving on the state. And yet the state will allow, if you like, uh, energy providers like this to actually fleece in, in this manner. And the actions that have taken, you see, part of the problem as well is actually dealing with the like of corporations like Electric Ireland. Uh, I would have on our behalf at this stage emailed them. Uh, I got an email back in return saying, thank you very much for mm. your inquiry, but we're terribly busy and we'll get back yeah, to you. And, and you, you owe what you owe. We, 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 you know what to expect in the response. You owe what you owe, pay the bill or we yeah. cut you or we cut you off. Yeah, well, to an extent, that's, that's one part of the action. The next part was making contact with Electric Ireland. And the way these things are dealt with now, you deal with an agent as opposed to the actual company. All they can do, or all they do is listen to you and tell you what you can and you can't do. But no decisions can be made relative to any individual or to any cohort of people. And uh, the bill itself, Michael, was due, if you like, the due date was the 24th of February. And there are always situations they don't mind if it runs eight or ten days past, but this lady would always have paid on time. And without any prompting whatsoever, yesterday afternoon, just four days past the deadline, she received a letter from Electric Ireland offering her very generously terms. Now, the terms actually state uh, the payment plan for the outstanding balance of 957.49 uh, the arrears can be split into 10 equal payments of 95.75 over a period of 10 weeks. So they're giving her 10 weeks to pay this. Please note that this would not include future bills and it must be paid in full within the credit term. Okay, what's she going to do? 
Well, look, I mean, I, I, I don't know just as yet. I haven't discussed that letter with her in full detail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a dreadful she, situation, though, Frank. It really it's is. A very, yeah, it's a dreadful yeah, situation, yeah, Michael. Yeah. And she's a lady who has always paid her bills. I mean, if you take yeah. uh, on the bill itself, she received... Uh, I would always make sure it's paid on time. And it's included in, in, in her deductions in mm. this bill. There's 46 credit for savings for paying on time. OK, now, well... Kitty, I'm sure, is listening this morning and best wishes to you, Kitty, if you are listening or send on our best wishes to Kitty if you would, please, Frank. Uh, we have to go up yeah. to the news now, so I have to leave it there, but it re- I think there's an awful lot of people I can see from the text uh, who are very upset to hear what uh, she's being charged, uh, but thanks for telling us about it, Frank Dempsey. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, it's been a bad start to the year for the government with a lot of focus on standards in office and ethics legislation. Niall Collins, a junior minister, is now under the spotlight and a statement from the minister was expected on Tuesday of this week. It didn't happen. It was expected to happen then yesterday or today. But it seems now that that statement they may not be given to the doll until next week sometime. Let's speak uh, to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Sean, and thanks for joining us on the programme. What's the delay in the minister making? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colours to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details this statement and clarifying his position. Yes, we had been warned, I suppose, at the start of the week and on Tuesday in particular when it was made clear that Niall Collins wanted to do a statement that it could be a number of days before it actually happens. The T-shirt indicated in the door that he might actually do it on Tuesday. That obviously wasn't the case. And then the understanding was that he was waiting for a seat of the original file from Limerick County Council. Now, given that some media that's managed to get the file that day, you would have to assume that he got it fairly quickly and has then uh, pouring over it. So there may yes be a statement today. Obviously, it didn't come uh, yesterday, but Niall Commons obviously wants to be very sure before going into the door that he can draw a line under all of the different accusations. So I'd imagine he's going to take his time and make sure that he has all his T's crossed and I's dotted. And certainly, some reports uh, from uh, local journalists in Limerick last night suggesting that he, Niall Collins himself was confused 
by some of the, the wording or the terminology in the particular application for planning, in, in particular in relation to the fact that he is mentioned as Neil Collins a number of times, which obviously isn't his name. His name is yeah. Neil Collins, and he put in the name himself, and then some other uh, accusations in relation to other applications that didn't ultimately go through about his wife using uh, different variations of her name in the spelling. So we haven't heard from the minister directly. Yes, you would imagine if it doesn't come today, it would have to come pretty early next week. He doesn't want this dragging through all of the weekend papers. But also, where we've seen before in the past where ministers have gone into the door with perhaps a half-cooked story, Pascal Donoghue being the, the prime example with his recent controversies and then ultimately have to come before the door again and face more questions, which is a situation that Minister Collins obviously wouldn't want. Uh, and of course, uh, that came on the back of Damien English, who still hasn't made a statement out of uh, outside of a, an appearance a, a, on the internet uh, and hasn't been seen or heard of since his resignation. No, exactly. And a number of opposition parties raising that this week when the Collins uh, controversy raised itself, saying they are still waiting for Damien English to come forward. Now, I imagine Damien English says, well, look, he resigned as minister. He did it very straight away and he sort of uh, admitted wrongdoing, so didn't doesn't feel any obligation and has no longer an office holder indeed doesn't have an obligation to come before the door so that's entirely in his prerogative to do but uh, a lot of other TDs sort of unhappy that they didn't get their chance to to Mm. quiz him a little bit further in public. I think a lot of his constituents are are a bit disappointed too and very Mm -hmm. disappointed that uh, the former minister hasn't uh, taken the time to speak to his local uh, constituents and those who voted him into office and give a a reasonable explanation but uh, a lot of this has been bad for the government hasn't it and it seems to be impacting uh, on the opinion polls. I'd say they need this controversy uh, to die off as quickly as possible. We can say that with all the different controversies that they've they've been under, you know, it it seems to be one after another after another and all related to either bad or misleading bookkeeping depending on what way you view things. So, absolutely not a controversy they need. Now, it is interesting that Niall Collins has decided that he is going to sort of fight this, you know, because obviously Damien English almost the second the story came out initially on the Dish website, he said, right, gone to the Taoiseach, handed in his resignation, they agreed that he should resign. And the alleged offence of misleading the council in relation to a planning application is very, very similar. Now, Collins, though, adamant that he did nothing wrong, but he stuck to the rules of the time when it came to the Limerick County Council uh, applications process. And as we know, because the council's all set their planning rules slightly differently, and this is the case from 20 years ago, it's hard to initially get a grasp of who had the right and who had the, the wrong of it. So he has decided to go, if you like, the Robert Choi route. Remember him from the, mm-hmm. the last, one of the last uh, controversies that, that came along and actually fight this. Robert Choi ended up making statements at the doll, making a number of media appearances that ultimately did him no good and he resigned. So it will be interesting to see what way this unfolds. But Minister Collins very adamant he did. He stuck to the process as it was proper and has said that he is indeed seeking uh, legal advice in relation to, to the ditch article. The mere mention of the ditch website must send a shiver up the spines of politicians. In fairness, they've had a, they've had a couple of good scoops now in, in the last while. Uh, and I suppose it, it's put a bit more focus on uh, the, their past activities that maybe a lot of politicians themselves have forgotten about or aren't looking back on. It's interesting, even if you see, I, I went looking the other day, for example, at the, the Register of Members' Interests of the Dáil, which is where they declare you know, properties and stock interests and whether they have uh, involvement in any sort of companies. And quite a few different TDs have been updating their register for years past. Now, nothing necessarily... 
uh, untowards in that, some of them putting up, you know, voluntary or unpaid directorships and things that they otherwise might have put on it or didn't think they needed to put on it. So in terms of being a bit healthier for democracy and keeping ministers to account, I think you'd have to say that's a good thing. Uh, speaking of uh, opinion polls, Sean, I don't think there's any prospect of a general election uh, tomorrow or the day after, but there definitely is a, a sense of the parties preparing for that now and people before profit writing to a, a number of political parties talking about uh, an alliance of the left. Yeah, in particular Sinn Féin and the Social Democrats. Interestingly, they didn't send this particular letter to the Labour Party, who would have obviously views of the left, but is viewed uh, with uh, how with disdain, I suppose the nicest way I could put it, within people before profit uh, for their time in government, obviously, in the last decade. And basically saying that, look, if not quite a full voting pact that perhaps there should be a transfer pact between some of the parties left in order to create a credible left-leaning government the next time around. And this is like this is Mary Lou MacDonald's headache as much as it is people before profits headache because it, it seems clear if the election was run tomorrow Sinn Féin would be returned as the largest party with 30-something percent of the vote but that doesn't get you to a government majority and remember the government majority in the next door could be as high as 90 given all the different extra seats that may be put in by the Electoral Commission. So they are going to have to make up those votes elsewhere. Will it be with likes of the likes of the Social Democrats? Can they, under the new leader, Holly Kearns, expand, take a few more seats if they were in a position to have, say, eight to ten seats? They could be kingmakers in the next government. But people before profit also as well, I think, will be looking over their own shoulders because quite a few of their TDs were elected on the back of Sinn Féin transfers in the last government. And while they do have very high profiles in their individual constituencies, mm. the likes of Richard Boyd Barrett, Paul Murphy, uh, would have a very strong personal brand if there is a big leftist vote going to Sinn Féin and they're now running more candidates, two or three candidates, you would expect that some of those TDs could be pushed out by the second and third Sinn Féin runners in different constituencies. So there is an element of sort of trying to maybe curry a little bit of favour, get a few of those transfers in order to keep their own seats too. Right, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, they say, uh, have an ideology of neoliberalism and that's uh, reflected in policies on health, climate crisis and taxation as well uh, as housing uh, because uh, the parties are full of landlords. Uh, They talk about Salvador Allende, the Marxist president of Chile who was ousted in the 1970s by the Americans and they say that both those parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, are using the war in Ukraine to kill off neutrality. Worse still, they're talking about uh, uh, the wealthy elite deploying Gardaí and the defence forces against the election of a, a left-wing government. Are they being a bit over the top? Yeah, I think in some of those areas they are, and I think a lot of people listening will not really care a huge amount about whether someone is a neoliberal ideology or whether they're Marxist or whatever. Like It doesn't really impact a huge amount on our day-to-day uh, returns. What they'll want to know is what is a leftist government? What would a leftist government look like and what would it do for them? So I think ultimately... You know, when someone goes into the ballot box, yeah, there would be an element of the population that I'm sure is thinking about these very high-flying ideals of political ideology, but most people are going to be thinking about, well, can I get a house? Can my son or daughter get a house? Um, if I get sick, am I going to get good health care in this country? Are our children going to be educated well and set up for the future? And is the economy going to uh, put all of us in a position to, to have a good, comfortable quality of life? I think they're the mm. things that most people wonder about. Uh, and ultimately... That is where the parties will be judged. They'll judge Finnegan and Fianna Fáil on their track record in, in, in Dáil Éireann over the last, well, by the time the election, close to 15 years, I suppose it will be. And there is, or if, if Sinn Féin can capitalise on that sense of wanting change that was there in 2020 and push it forward, then I think they may well get their chance. The one thing I wonder about, I don't think you'll ever see Fine Gael Sinn Féin coalition, but I don't think a Sinn Féin-Fianna Fáil coalition is totally out of the question. 
Uh, and that is where, you know, there would be cover for someone like people before profit to say, absolutely, we're not, we're not going to be part of this particular government. We're going to shout from the opposition instead, where I think actually they're probably quite comfortable. OK, and that probably brings us uh, to the change of leadership in the Social Democrats. And you'd wonder if Generation X will find that party uh, to be of appeal, given that uh, change and uh, what Holly Kearns has uh, been saying. Uh, and I think probably the only leader who probably represents presents Generation X in the doll now. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you put all the leaders side by side, you say which one stands out, you, you'd have to say uh, Holly Kern does, you know, young, articulate, intelligent uh, female leader who, you know, is in her early 30s, faces an awful lot of problems up the, the lower end millennials and higher end Gen Z, if you want to put it that way, uh, will face in terms of uh, housing, in terms of having grown up as, as, as babies of the recession, if you like, and lived through that and come through college and school and all that during that particular time and have a certain mindset because of it. So definitely there is a view within both the Social Democrats and Labour, interestingly, that there is an appetite for an alternative that's, you know, not quite as far left as Sinn Féin and not as far centre as the likes of Fianna Fáil. So somewhere in the middle there, sort of pragmatic centre leftism uh, to get back into these awful, awful terms that I just <laughs> d- decried a minute ago. Um, but, the, you know, that sort of middle ground voter that maybe could be attracted towards the likes of the Social Democrat, they obviously aren't scarred by being in government before because they've never, never been there. And a lot of their spokespeople are really quite good. So the, the problem they will have is that same problem of Sinn Féin gobbling up votes on the left and whether they can sort of sneak in in different constituencies. And I think for them, and actually for an awful lot of parties, it's going to be a crucial uh, moment this summer when we get the constituency redraws because if they go for we know there's going to be somewhere between 9 and 19 extra seats if they go for larger constituencies and you get sort of five seaters in the likes of, of Fingal and maybe even Loud then you could see smaller parties doing well because, because the threshold is just lowered for the amount of votes that you need but if it's a case of splitting up areas and having more three-seaters and doing it that way then you would think Sinn Féin would certainly capitalise so look there is a market mm. there whether they can tap in and whether Holly Kearns is the person to do that. I think she's had a good shot, but it's still uh, TBD because she is quite an inexperienced politician, as by her own admission, only got into politics less than than five years ago, which is one of the first things she said in her acceptance speech. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Sean. Thanks very much, as always. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. The General Secretary of uh, the Labour Party, Billy Sparks, has made contact with Facebook, highlighting how uh, local Labour Party councillor and uh, the Mayor of uh, Drogheda, Michelle Hall, has been targeted and bullied, he says, by a Facebook group. Facebook has responded to the Labour Party about this Facebook group, saying that neither the content nor the group violated its community standards. And the Irish Times reports today that in its response to Labour, Facebook, or Meta, said we've reviewed the group and determined that the content does not violate our policies. Let's speak to Mayor Hall, and a very good morning to you, Michelle, and thanks for joining us on the programme today. You've been subjected to an awful lot of abuse, a stream of abuse, I think you've described it as. Hi, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, I suppose since this term second um, uh, community standing together Facebook group was set up from day one, I suppose I was being called out constantly on the group. Um, And then it just never stopped, really. Um, I had put up com- uh, statements on my own page um, 
about the asylum seekers coming to Chairman Fekin, um, and it was just constantly being trolled, so um, I had to take it down. Um, and I wouldn't be commenting on somebody else's pages when um, some of the stuff was really awful. Uh, you know, you, you just couldn't comment on some of the stuff. But if anybody contacted me, I was no problem to talk to anybody on the phone or through email or whatever. But very few people did. Instead, there was a lot of keyboard warriors who were just constantly um, singling me out as the one uh, elected representative in County Loud who was welcoming, as they called them, refugees. Um, and using very derogatory terms with people with unfound rumours about them and uh, unfair comments and uh, certain messages that just were not um, were not reflective of the people that were coming here. And it was just constant every day. Um, I would be reporting um, some of the things and more or less Facebook would come back and say um, they don't breach our community standards and if you don't like it, uh, you can just leave the page and block us. Um, the Facebook page went private, um, but people were then constantly messaging me with, um, going, oh my God, have you seen what they've said about you? And they'd be sending me on screenshots and memes that were up about me. And then some people were actually fearful for the refugees because some of the rhetoric that was going around, they afraid that they were actually going to get hurt themselves um, by the anger that was being displayed on the page. So um, I had contacted the Labour Party to ask them, could they report it? Because I wasn't getting anywhere with it. Other people that were reporting it weren't getting anywhere. So they did as well. And they never came back to us for quite a while until Anna Batchik spoke about it. Um, just in general about uh, abuse, um, um, online abuse to public representatives. And then they came back and said it didn't breach their standards. Um, but you're kind of going, I was kind of lucky in some ways because I was blocked from the group and I couldn't, I couldn't get in and see it. It's not that I wanted to see it, um, but my friends had seen some of it and they were kind of keeping an eye on it, sending it to me, and that was kind of upsetting. And then my, my kids had actually made a fake account because they wanted to see what was happening. And then, oh my God, we just went down a very dark hole looking at all of the horrible stuff. Anything that I put up on my own page was being reflected on their page and saying I was narcissistic and egoistic and... Um, that I was making the community dangerous when I had absolutely nothing to do with anybody coming to term second. Uh, it was not in my control whatsoever. Um, I refused to um, engage in um, you know, hate speech about it, um, but was very welcome to talk to anybody who had concerns. And I had spoken to several people um, to try and ease some of their concerns and answer their questions. Um, but yeah, it just was just nonstop. So it was, and it was just, singled out as me, even though I had an emergency motion um, for zero tolerance and all of the loud councillors backed it. Um, so it's not like I'm the only person who says that um, you know refugees are welcome in county beds. We all say everybody's welcome. But obviously we do have concerns around supports for the asylum seekers and communities to welcome people into the uh, into successfully into society here. But um, it doesn't mean that you can actually be... Um, abusive to me non-stop every day um, and, uh, and, not acceptable. Uh, and um, from what I know of what you've been subjected to uh, it, it was abusive and very abusive at that uh, would you say it was threatening did you feel threatened um, well I definitely felt bullied um, you know bullying is like a consistent uh, harassment of one particular person and that definitely did happen it made me question um you know, all the work that I had done over the years, all the positive work. And constantly people were saying to me, oh, it must be hard with people. And I was like, no, people are just 
so lovely. They really are genuinely so lovely. They can see that you're working hard. They appreciate that. And it was like all the work that I'd ever done was just gone down the drain in this one instance with something that I had no control over whatsoever. Um, so I... I no, I, I don't. I, I, I don't think that's true um, because um, I, I know there's a lot of members uh, in that group, but I, I think most of them are from Dublin or Cork or wherever. They're not locals, uh, and I think there's great support for the uh, asylum seekers in Termon Fecken. There, there, uh, there definitely is now, and from that, we actually um, a load of people came together, and there's a big um, group of about 30, 40 people who have come together to. Um, you know, to support asylum seekers mm. locally. Um, but like, for example, if you're saying about threatening, like at one stage, I was doing the 100 days of walking um, and somebody had taken a screenshot from my um, from my own Instagram and said, oh, she won't be doing that for long. You know, and that actually, I actually didn't go out for quite a while. I was quite afraid that I'd be attacked in term second, even though it's very small minority. But at the time, it did seem a lot of local people not a lot, but you know, some local people were um, very much against us. And but we've uh, seen unsavoury characters uh, uh, associated with uh, these anti-immigrant campaigns, and there's been some arrests, uh, and uh, indeed, uh, some people have been charged uh, with inciting hatred, uh, as well as charges in relating to threatening life because of burning down hotels, and they uh, tend to be the same people who are signing up to all of these groups. As I say, they're from outside of the area so God knows who they are uh, and yeah. when you're receiving messages like that and you're, you're, you're feeling such hatred uh, from nutters quite often uh, undoubtedly you're going to feel threatened Yeah, that, that, that's just it you just don't know um, if you're going to come across them if they're going to do something stupid outside your own house or more importantly against um, other asylum seekers um, and their families that are living here in Chermfec and we mm. have Ukrainians as well. And those, um, you, so those, those people have done nothing wrong in, um, uh, in the Triple House. I, I, I've, heard, uh, I, I've heard that there's uh, some people who have criminal records uh, who are associated with some of these groups. Well, you know, I don't want to comment about other people, um, you know, who, who may have set up the Facebook group and stuff, mm. but... Um, no, well, I don't no. mean necessarily who set up the Facebook. But but I mean, when people are putting these things on the internet, have they been vetted? Oh, exactly. Like, but also, the, the, you know, this is where the vacuum of lack of information from government um, has led to the situation where um, other people with hidden agendas and all that are coming in and they're manipulating and they're creating fear and division in the community. Um, and they're allowed to do that because there has been that kind of um, misunderstanding or not um, there's not a clear message from mm. government and it's what Ivanovacic has constantly said we need like a COVID type um, messaging um, to tell people you know that setting in Ireland is only around you know people who work with vulnerable adults and with children that people that come um, have been processed usually through um, City West or etc and the where they're coming out to different communities. Mm. A, co- a lot of these men, you know, where... Uh, well, there's some of these people in these Facebook groups who I wouldn't like to see move into my community, if you know what I mean. I'd be very happy to welcome uh, the people who are living in Triple House at the moment because uh, I met a lot of them and they're all very nice people who have found themselves in a, a dreadful situation. They're looking for protection. Uh, instead, they're being greeted with hatred. 
uh, and vile statements like this, thankfully, uh, and I'm sure you'll agree that the vast majority of people in Term and Feckin are decent people. Uh, they don't Absolutely. have they don't have criminal Absolutely. records. We don't need and to I vet them, and they are welcoming of uh, the people coming in. Yeah, and I think the point that we're trying to make here is Facebook. So basically that there's a closed group and it was an open group for a long time and they were still allowed to make all these comments. It's a closed group now who are allowed to make any and share as many um, inappropriate videos as they want and um, incorrect information as they want. And there's absolutely um, no recourse to take it down that doesn't breach any of the community standards. They can put up memes about me. They can say whatever they want and there's no recourse whatsoever. And it seems to be a wider uh, remit that they can... uh, you know, give abuse towards elected representatives. Um, but whenever I try to counterbalance that, so, you know, that's fine. People, you know, have expression of um, freedom of expression to a certain extent, but not to incite hatred and threats or whatever. But if, even on my own page, then, if I try to even put anything up to counterbalance that argument or give factual information, I would just constantly troll. So you actually don't even have a platform yourself. Yeah. To counterbalance that, but that's typical. But that's typical fascist behaviour, uh, and uh, and it's the same fascists who say, "Oh, they're going to call me a racist." That's because they are racist. They're fascists and they're bullies, uh, and that's what happens uh, when you get groups coming together like this, fueled by false information and hatred and venom and so on. But as you say, this is not in breach of Facebook's community standards, or at least that's what Facebook have told you. Uh, what do you make of Facebook's community standards? Well, I just had to laugh because last week, you know, I've been trying to do so many positive things in my time as mayor. And we had um, the litter pick with the Looking Good Trotadale where, you know, we had all the different organisations with Trotadale Tidy Towns and the Business Chamber and Love Trotadale. And I tried to boost a post that, of the event that we were having. And it was a lovely post of Trotadale with flowers on it. And Facebook came back pretty instantly and they said, sorry, this breaches our community standards for social and political issues. And I was like, are they for real? I was like, there's literally flowers on this. And I Why was that? Is that because you're a politician? Yeah, it was because I was a politician. Something that, you know, and Uh, I I can't believe this. So in Mm. other countries, like in Australia Mm. and and Canada, I think they have been trying to put in more standards on Facebook. And I definitely think that we need some legislation. So so you can go on Facebook and you you can go on Facebook and you say, I'm not a racist, but I want them out and I want to burn their house down and so on. But I'm not a racist. And that's okay with Facebook's community standards. But you can't clean up your village uh, if you're a politician and put it on Facebook. I know. Yeah, it's so ironic, like, you know, and this is where you need to be really, you know, counterbalancing all the negative with really positive stuff. And I'm just going to give a quick plug, if you don't mind, like we've International Women's Week next week, and uh, we've already sold out. I'm doing a history tour of uh, women in Drogheda um, on the following Sunday, or Saturday, it's sold out. And we also have a cycle on this Sunday, um, heading out to Bewley House. But I'm also having a, a, a cultural night in, in the TLT in the Prop Bar, a beautiful um, place up there. So there is, and uh, we have the Voices of the Bowing Choir coming and the Love and Life Choir. And um, I have some lovely people. My mother is coming to talk, tell us about life in Drogheda in the 50s and 60s. And then we have um, some women from Nigeria, uh, India, Ukraine. 
Um, and we have John McGrady, his wife Lily, um, who you may know has suffered from motor neurons disease and it's actually fundraising for her. And she spoke at my first international women's event. You know, so lots of positive things mm. going on there that we want to like, this, this is the real draw. This Gosh, is the real and being a welcoming community. Yeah. And unfortunately, it is, you know, Facebook is just in our lives. Mm. It's very much part of being a politician. Yeah getting the message across and you know people have said to me before I love your Facebook pages because you know they're full of enthusiasm and energy and you're infectious and that's what I want to keep up Yeah well before Facebook and the likes before Facebook and the likes gave these people a platform uh, nobody nobody would have heard what they had to say because nobody listens to people like that. Uh, but Michelle, we're delighted to have heard what you've had to say today and sorry to hear that uh, you've had to endure such uh, abuse and threatening behaviour and unacceptable behaviour under normal circumstances. And uh, we're also equally disappointed with Facebook and Meta that they've responded in the way that they have to you and to your political party. Thanks for jo- Thank you for joining us today, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. Michelle Hall, Labour Party Councillor on Louth County Council, is the Mayor of Drogheda. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's a huge need for housing and there's a a lot of houses that are being rented out short term. Short term rentals or STRs, Airbnb being one example, but it's not the only example. If a property is designated STR in the planning, that that requirement has only come in in the last 10 years. So my house was built in the 60s, never had that requirement, been in business for a long time. And there are an awful lot of people who are like that. However, if you've got a property which is designated SDR, it can't go into the long-term rental market. And if somebody wants to buy it, it's worth 20% less or more on the open market because you can't get a mortgage on it. So that's what I mean, it devalues it. Now you can apply to get it to go back into Mm -hmm. the long-term market, but as the question was asked in the Senate recently, that is not envisaged that that is easy enough, that's easy to do. That would be easy to do. It wouldn't be that easy to do. No. Right, well, that's something maybe that could be looked yeah. at in the bill. Did that change up, change back? Yeah. Um, so uh, the the it would be onerous on people because um, the the planning you will have to go in for planning requirements. So in other words, it cost about five six thousand euro. Right, so that's uh, Maura Nimuraku of Irish Self Catering speaking to Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster at a, a meeting of uh, the Oireachtas Tourism Committee yesterday, which was hearing uh, how more complicated it may be to free up short-term rentals for housing needs in this country. Let's speak to Imelda Munster now. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us on the programme. Nothing is ever straightforward, I suppose. No, I think the whole idea of this was to, um, well, firstly, the, the, the register has been initiated as a result of EU legislation um, and Falsha Ireland have been tasked with um, compli- co- compiling the register. Um, now, they, were, they started initial scraping, if you like, of data from the four main short-term letting websites Airbnb, Booking.com, Expedia. Um, and they had identified, I think it was 30,000 short-term letting properties across the state, which was, they reckon, approximately 130,000 beds. And most of those hadn't been known to to Falsha, um, who'd done the, the, the scraping exercise. But according to the 
Irish Self-Catering Federation, um, they had said only about 50% of the bookings were through these major sites, if you like, and 40% were with other agents and, and 10% directly with the provider. So the figure could be much higher indeed. And I suppose the whole purpose of this in the midst of a housing crisis is to free up and bring more houses, particularly in red rent pressure zones back into the use for long-term rentals. Maybe 12,000 units. Uh, that was the guesstimate from the minister, wasn't it? Yes, but that's, I mean, it, it, we had the department in a couple of weeks ago and it's clear that they really have no notion. That's just from their scraping exercise. It, it looks like the figure could be way higher than that. Mm. Uh, but uh, it, it may result in none in some areas uh, because some of uh, these properties are letting a room out short term and that sort of thing uh, in an area where perhaps there isn't a need for housing. Well, yeah, I mean, it, if there's a lot of, we need a lot of clarity on it. I asked the committee afterwards um, yesterday to email the department and the minister um, on several things. One is if you're using your own home, you know, your primary residence and you're just renting out one room, it's not clear in law if you have to apply for a change of use for that. We also need clarity on whether um, the, the... are those engaging in short-term letting mm. are barred from letting once they register? Are they are they still allowed to let out the property until it's regularised? Or do they have to demonstrate that they're planning compliant to be eligible to be registered? Mm. You know, um, and, and, and as we heard there, if you uh, apply for the change of use uh, and you get the planning permission, in other words, to let it out, uh, you devalue your house by twenty percent, uh, and it cost five or six thousand to return it back to its original status but that could be that's something that could be looked at in the bill that you can change it back to long-term rental Mm. if you like um i mean at the minute um with the planning the the, there's there's actually no change in the planning laws with this bill the planning laws already exist both from 2019 and an on-board planola decision in 2016 the problem is that there's very little planning compliance and I suppose it could be argued tax compliance as well because there's no register and nobody knows you know who's who's engaged in short-term letting or who's not yeah. um, so that it's to clear up a lot of those things as well and as, to balance that against houses. and to balance that against the need for accommodation for tourists coming into the country exactly. as well yeah you have to you have to protect and support the tourism economy like there was um I think it was that same lady uh, that she had in the piece there that had said her house is up uh, a boreen, mm. if you like, and that there's no way that um, she would get planning permission on that. Well, we'd be looking for to press for the maximum flexibility, you know, from local authorities with respect to, say, non-principal residents um, to support the tourist economy. And that's something they'll have to take on board. Okay, uh, do you believe uh, that uh, it can be part of uh, the solution to the housing crisis? Oh, I I definitely think so, yeah, I definitely think so. Um, If it can release, even going by Fulcher Ireland's figures, if it can bring back 12,000 houses and possibly more, a lot more, that will certainly um, relieve the housing crisis. You know, it'll it'll offer more long-term rentals 
Um, as you know, as you know, I would deal with people week in, week out. There's nowhere to rent. They, they're on the housing list. There's no affordable housing. So a lot of that would 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 help in this situation, particularly in rent pressure zones. Mm. And sorry, I was just going to say um, that it's different to rent out a, a property than it is to um, have a, a short term rental uh, because of tenants' rights and so on. Uh, it, you, you may end up with fewer houses. I think that's one of the points that was put to you in the committee yesterday. Yes, but at the at the same time, I mean, there has to be a register. We have to have some idea of the amount of properties in short-term lettings across the state. Um, you also have to take on board health and safety. You know, if like, for example, if someone converts a garage and rents it out for short-term lettings, we have to know that they're health and safety that there's fire safety you know inspections all that sort of thing that they're they're it's good for for the hosts and the guests and mm. safe for the guests you have to make sure that you know i think it was the rep from um airbnb that was saying yesterday that he was more or less dismissing all of this and saying you know people should be allowed dip their toe in if you like and see if yeah and why not like this business but mm. well i mean i could turn my sitting room into a shop tomorrow or you know mm. hairdressers or a beauty salon or a gym or anything mm. there has to be compliance with you know you, you can well standards is one thing but why not allow people to rent them out without well, going it, through it, all it, of this it, process well, like it, they do in every other country in the world uh, I mean Airbnb has opened up the world uh, particularly to working class people who now can take cheap flights uh, and stay in expensive cities in cheap apartments. Yeah, and there's nobody saying otherwise, and I agree with you 100%, but at the same time, you have, we're in the midst of a housing crisis. There's nowhere to rent in all major towns across the state, and in, particularly in rent pressure zones, if they can be brought back into use for long-term rental, that's of benefit to everybody, both the homeowner and people on the, the, you know, looking for a property to rent. Mm. But you certainly, there has to be, there has to be guidelines and there has to be registration. It's not, it's not precluding anybody. And as I said, we'll be pressing hard for the maximum flexibility mm-hmm. when it comes to local councils. At the minute, um, local councils are, you know, they're, they're, um, they're taking enforcement action against non-principal residents and others against granny flats or outhouses and mm-hmm. some are enforcing against principal private residence, residences. But if if you have the register, you know what's what. And if people are compliant and if, if Fulcher Ireland need to give people supports to assist them to make alterations to get compliant, then we'll be pushing for that too. Okay. We have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath, Imelda Munster, a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Tourism. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Jerry Clark is on uh, the line. We heard uh, Jenny Gurk, Sinn Féin TD, talk uh, about uh, Jerry from Beliver and his Electric Ireland bill in uh, the Dáil a little bit earlier on. Jerry, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. Your, your, your bill is from the 9th of December to the 10th of February. Correct. How much are you being charged? Uh, this is astronomical. €1,678.65. Right. Can you, can you get that in one mouth? <laughs> <laughs> it it yeah. took me three hours to pick myself off the floor when I read it first. Right. 
your last bill uh, at the start of December was 671 euro, was it? From the 11th of October, to, I can start one before that. From the 13th of August to the 10th of October was 483.76. Right, so it's increased by 1,200 euro. The previous one to that was 290. Right, okay. 290. Uh, and now they're looking for 1,678 euro 65 cents. Yeah, and the uh, next one then was in from 11th of October to the 8th of December, 671.09. Have you been doing anything different in the last no, two months? This, this is the point. We haven't. Okay. Everybody's bill has gone up, but I'm not sure that everybody's bill has well, gone up the way yours has. Apparently, there's a lot of crazy bills out there. And uh, I call it, uh, the, the independent want to know what the heading should be. I said, the very quiet people of Ireland, because nobody stands up. And I am protesting on behalf of the quiet people of Ireland. Because if we were in any other country, to be on the streets protesting. But Ireland, for some strange reason, seems to accept and, and go forward. Now, the biggest problem we have is this. Our ESB is very antiquated for the last 10 years, and they have done absolutely nothing about it. Now, the Minister for Energy has had it on his desk for the last three years, a proposal, and done nothing. It's collecting cobwebs. Now, gas, as you know, uh, one researcher said gas is very expensive in Ireland. Well, maybe it is. But the reason is because the way we buy it, our gas is coming down from the, it's coming down from the, I'll tell you the date, from the, it started to tumble on the world market in the second half of 2022. Mm. It's come down by over 50%, hasn't it? Sorry, it's down to 80% on the Mm. world market. Now, Spain is buying it by the new time. There are ships in the high seas, four times the size of a football pitch, trying to get rid of gas. Now, there's as much gas as you want for the next uh, thousand years. The, the war has absolutely nothing to do because Russia doesn't supply any of Europe and hasn't had for quite some time, uh, with the exception of the odd pot here and there. Russia's uh, economy is dropped by more than 50% as regards fuel because the only people really buying up them is uh, India and China. Right. You believe you've got the dearest bill for electricity in the world? Correct, according to uh, Nairt, who worked it out. Are you going to pay this bill? No, I'm going to fight. But what I'm very sorry for, Mike, is what about the poor individual that doesn't uh, take up arms and fight? Uh, They could wind up homeless. What what to, what tools have you got to fight this with? Because well, I, I'm thinking about it at the moment. I'll keep at it. I'll keep at it. But they'll cut you off, won't they? Uh, well, they've stalled it now to the thirtieth of March. Mm. But we'll we'll keep working at it. I'd, uh, I'll uh, I'll spend a few hours every day working on it. Okay. Did you talk to them about it? I did. It took me three three quarters of an hour to get through to them. Mm. That's so many problems to have. Now, we may, we're checking all our implements here to see if there's a leakage. Right. But uh, we are buying gas as extra. The best way to describe it is how we buy our gas in Ireland. Hmm. We, it's like a corner shop who buys the, the, their goods, and then they buy it off a wholesaler, and the wholesaler buys it off the agent, the agent buys it off the manufacturer. And with the result, everybody gets a cut, and you, you can imagine the price at the end of it. And that's exactly what the way Ireland buys their gas. Mm. Now, Germany, 
who are very efficient people and some of the Nordic countries, very efficient. And they have very smart people at the front who know how to handle energy. And that's going to be the way forward for Ireland in the future. We're going to have to have somebody who's smart and knows what they're doing and knows uh, how to negotiate because uh, it's going to be here forever. Mm. But at now, the same time, Jerry, this bill, €1,678.65, is your bill. Uh, yeah. And you, you say you're not going to pay it. I'm sure you, you, you told Electric Ireland that when you were on the phone. I have to told them, them that. Uh, what, what did they say to you? They said, they said we'll stall it till the 30th of March. Mm. And then what? And we, we, I don't know. I don't know what the outcome is going to be then. Oh, listen, they're trying to break their way. Now, for argument's sake, the IMF came on the radio there. I couldn't believe it, how they could insult people. So that. They said, we buy on this fuel a year or two years in advance. And I said, if that's the case, then why were we not getting it at the old price during the war? Mm. Because we had bought it on in advance, the same as Ryanair and the airline companies buy it in order to give you cheap tickets. And oh, hadn't got an answer for that. And then they said, isn't it extraordinary also? that you put the price up the minute, if it goes up overnight, you have it up the following day. Mm. Now, if you buy it on in advance, why is that? They had no answer for any of that. But you're going to get another bill like this in May, aren't you? I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but uh, we'll we, 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 uh, check all our implements here and see what the problem is. Yeah. Uh, or see where it's coming from. If, if it's a problem here, or they say the smart meters, we have a smart meter here. They, they say it may be causing the problem. Mm. Our, our well pump, we've got a new one in it. It may be causing the problem. So we're getting that checked this week. Mm. And, but uh, but under, excuse me, under normal circumstances, uh, I mean, nobody could afford that. Absolutely not. We're, according to them, we're using 63 units per day for 64 days. But... We in Ireland are getting the raw end of the stick. For argument's sake, uh, I study all this. Energy is uh, oil and gas. Our mm. oil and petrol has gone down from $139 a barrel. They use dollars because it's the most common currency in the world. And down to $80 a barrel. That's what nearly 40% of a decrease. Mm. Okay. Have you seen that, Michael, at the pumps? <laughs> no. no and, I now, and who's our negotiator there? Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, I think um, uh, when prices are high, uh, the government also takes in a, a lot more money yeah. as well, apart from anything else, Jerry. Listen, well, the, fa- the famous Warren Buffett words were, mm. risks come from knowing what you, not knowing what you are doing. And that's where we're at. They don't know what they're doing. Okay, we Jerry, I've run out of time. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, we should have holding tanks in Ireland the same as Germany. Germany built six holding tanks. In one month, and I had them up and running. The trust Chinese built them. Okay. They, they saved their industry. Jerry, thank you indeed uh, for taking our call today. Much appreciated. That's Jerry Clark and Beliver. Maggie McGuire research today. Chris Murray was at the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.